Just, just shout. So angry right now. <laughs> that was the worst <laughs> shout I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> Does your team need to master AngularJS? Oasis Digital offers Angular Bootcamp, a three-day in-person workshop class for individuals or teams. Bring us to your site or send developers to ours, angularbootcamp.com. This episode is sponsored by Kendo UI. The Kendo UI family of UI components delivers everything you need to quickly and easily build rich, responsive Angular 1 and 2 applications. Kendo UI for Angular 2 is built from the ground up on TypeScript as 100% native components with zero jQuery dependencies. Kendo UI for jQuery works seamlessly with Angular 1.x, so you can build apps with declarative data binding, routing, form validation, and more. Kendo UI can help you speed up the development time for your next application by up to 50%. Go check them out at devchat.tv slash kendo UI. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 125 of the Adventures in Angular show. This week on our panel, we have Ward Bell. Hello, everyone. Alyssa Nichol. Hello, hello. John Papa. Hello. Lucas Rubelke. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. This week we have a special guest. That's Travis Tidwell. Hey, guys. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Do you want to give us a brief introduction real quick? Do you? Yeah. Of, of course. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> So, I, like you said, my name is Travis Tidwell. I'm the uh, co-founder and CTO of Formio, um, which is a it's a newish uh, company. We've been around for two years now, and essentially, what we are providing is an Angular JS and React JS based uh, front end form solution, where you can build your forms with a form builder, and that generates a schema which not only renders the form in your front end application but it also automatically generates REST APIs for data management. And so I'm very excited to be here to talk about serverless applications and where I, where you know, a lot of the experiences that I've had building these new, uh, new applications in a new, exciting world. Thanks for having me. No problem. So uh, this is great. What, what's a form? <laughs> no, actually, it's it's great that you start there because uh, form it can mean a, mu- a bunch of things. <laughs> I actually mean it in the very literal web development sense, where it is a it's a way for data collection. So a form is, in whenever I say form, I am actually referring to an HTML form that all of the developers dread, um, which is writing the form and all of the input elements into their web application. Um, it can also mean a structure, um, which I almost think that, you know, the way that we apply forms at Form.io can actually mean both because you're essentially taking the HTML input and you're using a JSON structure or a JSON form to automatically and dynamically render that form within your front-end application. So you can, using our form builder, which is really a glorified schema builder, you can create a form that then renders as an HTML form in the front end. Hopefully, that answers your question of what is a form. Well, so so it may help everyone because uh, they can't don't have diagrams uh, to sort of imagine, say, something that that strikes me as an obvious use case for this, which is building a questionnaire. I can imagine uh, and tell me if this is right, because it would be nice to be concrete during our our talk. Sure. Together. 
Um, uh, and you, so you tell me if this is a, uh, the right business case for it, use case for it. Uh, I'm generating sir, you know, questionnaires for, for field reps to go out there and inspect restaurants and inspect this and inspect that. Yeah. So they have to have these little checklist questionnaires and, um, as, and of course the questionnaires are always changing because they you know, what we're supposed to inspect today is always changing. So somewhere yeah. in the background, there's metadata that determines what the questionnaire for a restaurant is, what the questionnaire for a gasoline station is, what a questionnaire for a hotel is, that kind of thing. Is that the kind of business case that would propel what you're talking about? Spot on. And really, the, the these questionnaires um, have a lot more to them. So a lot of them are conditionally. So you have one question could maybe drive the presence of other questions that need to be asked. Right. Um, and so so, and, and I'm trying board. to keep it real simple, simple, Travis, but I, I get you. But it's like like the simplest problem that people can imagine is that some questions are multiple choice. Some questions have, uh, you know, have drop downs in which you select something. Some have free form text. Let's just imagine it. Let's keep it real simple like that. <laughs> my best. So that we can. So that because you know you see you do this all day long, but those of us who are listening in um, are familiar with that small of a problem. Uh, so let's see what you can tell us if uh, in those terms with those examples. So what you described, the actual use case is very is spot on, perfect of a use case on why you would use Formio. So you have a questionnaire where you need to have service reps filling out a web form. Um, for data collecting purposes. And so you are a developer and you let's say you're the developer tasked to build this app mm-hmm. in which the service rep would be using. So as a developer and you you would like to build it to be installed on the tablet application, so of course the obvious choice is Angular JS. You're going to build your application in Angular JS and you're going to render this form. Now you have a choice to make whenever you're doing Angular JS developments. You can either A, hand code that entire form in HTML and then latch on to the form, of course, and then hook it up to the API on the back end, which you also have to build the API to receive the data whenever mm-hmm. they press submit. Or you can use a tool like Form.io that allows you to build through a drag and drop form builder and, and really, it's just a, hey, I want a text field. And you, you click on text field and you drag it over to the, um, to the form. And that adds a text field. And you say, I want a drop down. You drag the text field over. So you're using a drag and drop interface to build a form whose purpose is to be embedded in a serverless app, such as your AngularJS application, which would essentially render that form dynamically in the application. But on top of that, it also builds the API to capture the data as well. Okay, so before we pursue that line of thought, is the process like, okay, I'm building an inspection form for a hotel, do my draggy droppy thing and create um, the definition. Now I'm doing a gasoline station, draggy droppy. Now I'm doing um, a hotel room, draggy droppy. Is that, so I build three, am I building three form definitions? Uh, Is that the idea? You are. Yep. So you have with you have the ability to create a project in Formio, and with a project you can create an unlimited amount of forms. And each form that you build would be it's its own simple drag and drop um, interface. And each one of those surveys that you need for even a different purpose could be a different form in your project. 
And then you were saying that there's a way to wire that up naturally to um, the data source such that it could uh, pull in the information from a previously completed survey and or take my new take a new field surfaces uh, reps entries and store it off, plucking the data out of the form. Yep, absolutely. So these forms are API driven, which is kind of a, a, the topic, which is really API driven serverless, you know, API driven components, which is basically you have the ability to using a um, that form schema, which is actually a JSON object. You have the ability to not only render the form dynamically, but that same JSON schema is used to auto-generate the REST API that accepts the data for that form. And using that same API as well, you can get to the data and then pre-populate the form with that submission object. Um, so what we're doing is we're taking this, this concept of when you're building a form, you're adding text fields and you're adding select dropdowns, but you're also adding validation criteria. What's the min and max value for these fields? What's the um, what is the data contents? And really, those same criterias are also applied when you're trying to build an API. When you build an API, you're really you're really building an interface of data. And the way that I like to tell people, and in fact, if you want an easy way to explain it, if you were to put a UI on top of an API, what you would end up with is a form. So the insight here is you can use a form builder to generate not only the form that you embed into your application, but also the API on the back end to receive the data of that form. And it all just seamlessly comes and connects together. So when you're, when you're a developer building this form, you use a directive, which is just an AngularJS directive that works a lot like an image tag. And so if you can embed this directive, which is like an image tag, it has a source and the source is pointing to the API of the form that will dynamically render that form right into your application and you don't have to worry about it. So the, so I think I'm hearing you say that the JSON, because you, you represent the metadata that drives the form as a, as a JSON, it has a JSON representation. Is that, that fair to say? Is it fair it's, to describe it as metadata? That it's, it is fair to say that it, the form definition is metadata. Um, there's a very popular library in Angular um, Formly um, which is a JSON-powered form schema definition. Um, so we're really, but that's only a front-end application library. Um, so we've essentially taken the same concepts of Formally on the front-end, but we've we've brought it also back into an API data management platform on the back gotcha. end. Gotcha. So, the met, so you're saying I can use the same metadata to draw the form and construct the API. Just use, just, just use the same thing, and so they're always going to be in sync. That's correct. And then, then also when you make modifications, you made, the, you made the comment, hey, when I'm making changes, I need to make changes to these forms. Um, no longer do you have to redeploy the app. Um, so in a lot of cases, you have your application has been deployed. You're using Apache Cordova to compile on actual devices. And you've got this app in an app store. If you have to make a change to your form, you know, you have, you'd have to redeploy. Where if the components are dynamically rendered, you make a change to the form in the form builder, it automatically pulls in the change in your app and then automatically configures the REST API on the back end. So could you, for instance, just point it at a Swagger endpoint and just say, form, create yourself. Essentially what you're doing is you know, you send the model to drive the form, which 
to me, like the obvious extension of this would be, I have a REST API. Why not you know, just point it at like a Swagger documentation, which conventional definition. Yeah, we we actually started off by trying to use Swagger. Um, the issue that you run into is when you're dynamically generating a form, which is HTML, and as you know, HTML is by nature hierarchical. You can have components within components within components. And the same applies for input elements. You can actually have forms within forms and input elements within input elements. And you have this hierarchical nature of a structure. We actually started off trying to use Swagger. Um, to define the form. The problem is, is by nature, the forms were, were very constrained in not only how they look, but also how they behave. Um, so there's some things that Swagger doesn't account for, which is like conditionals. Um, to make one bit of data input conditional based on the input of other values is a good example. And so because of that, we, we were really kind of limited on trying to build a form schema definition out of Swagger. So we ended up having to use essentially a, a custom schema definition that's very, it's more akin to like schema.org. Um, but even then we, we weren't able to use it because of some other limitations um, than Swagger. And then what we, what we then end up doing is with that schema, we then generate Swagger docs from our schema because it, you can easily get the scheme, uh, Swagger docs from our schema. So our APIs absolutely are compatible with Swagger um, documentation. In fact, we, we output a Swagger spec with the API that's generated with our, our form schemas. So the next question I have then is, what about a GraphQL model, which is even more expressive, where it allows you to actually express relationships, which is something that you really don't get in uh, like a REST API, um, you know, I'm curious if you've thought about you know extending you know, kind of this model-driven form world that you are talking about to kind of absorb GraphQL models and go from there. I've yeah, and I've very recently have been exposed to GraphQL, and I believe that it's a very exciting technology that has a lot of um, possibilities. Um, back two years ago, when we were you know developing. Form.io that wasn't as readily, you know, I don't even know if GraphQL is around at that time. Um, so as of right now, I think it's a it's a very exciting thing that I'm, I'm willing to explore and, you know, extend the the, um, the ability of integrating that capability. You're saying all the things that I want to hear, my friend. <laughs> I would just imagine that there are more concerns in the form definition, or there at least to be a different set of concerns. There'd be overlapping concerns for the API and the form, but there'd be plenty of form stuff that wouldn't be of interest uh, to the API, and there's probably API stuff that's not of interest to the form. So you're kind of trying to create a descriptive language that covers both spaces. Is that fair? Uh, that's a, a very fair. Um, in fact, a lot of the conditionals that I, I mentioned where one field shows up based on the values of other fields, an API doesn't necessarily care about it. Actually, I take that back. An API may decide to accept data if the conditions are, are correct for that field. Um, but it's, it uses those parameters differently, um, whereas the form on the front end uses those conditions to hide and show certain elements based on input the back end uses it in a different way. And so what we've had to do with our, with our schemas 
is not be specific front end or back end whenever we use to define them. Instead, what we do is we actually put a lot of capabilities in our renderers that we call we call the front end library that takes the schema and renders it, which everything front end is open source. In fact, our core is open source as well. The renderers take that schema, but they can also, the renderers can be configured to behave a certain way. And they can also be um, templated. You can actually override the templates from the renderers so that you can decide, let's say you have a very custom behavior you want out of your front end forms, you can actually override that in the rendering capabilities. And so that in that way, you're really using the separation of concerns that serverless applications gives you and doing what you need on the front end, but at the same time doing what you need to do on the back end. And you have that overlap, absolutely. Um, whereas used to, you would have to write, write it twice. Well, I don't know about anybody else, but you lost me with the word serverless application. Yeah. I, what the I, heck is that? <laughs> so I'd like to talk about that because it's becoming somewhat of a um, a, uh, a boardroom uh, bingo term. You know, whenever you're you're in a, a conference room, something that you eventually are going to want on your bingo slap. Whenever you're, it's a uh, serverless application. So let's let's talk about the word serverless because I think a lot of people actually misinterpret what it means. A lot of people believe that the word serverless app, oh, that means my application doesn't need a server. What I would like to say is that a serverless application doesn't mean that it doesn't use a server. The word serverless means that the application has been liberated from the server is a great way to think about it. So now instead of the application being served up by the server itself, and so in, in order to really kind of capture what I mean by that, Let's talk, let's talk in terms of websites back whenever the websites were originally introduced. Whenever you go and visit a website, you're actually sending a request to the server. The server is then taking your request, looking for a file on its file system, which is an HTML document, and then sending that HTML directly to the customer. So you essentially, through that request, you are getting an HTML page, and the server is responsible for sending the HTML page to the client. And through that, there actually became a, an evolution uh, where you have, now you have backend templating libraries that can dynamically generate HTML on the backend. PHP became very popular at that, uh, you know, during that time. And through that, you have CMSs. Now when you type you know, your website and you hit enter in your browser, that sends a request to the server. The server then takes PHP, renders the page, and then it still, even in that scenario, sends that HTML page to the, the client. Serverless applications flips that whole paradigm on its head, meaning that a server doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean that your application doesn't need a server. It just means that the server is not responsible for sending the app to or the the, the app to the client. That the the application can be deployed anywhere. You can deploy it in Apache Cordova. You can compile it in um, using Electron as a desktop application. You can put is it the, on. Isn't a, that what we mean by single page application? I, I'm not clear on the, on the distinction then. It. 
It is. It, it, yes. Yeah. So server, server, single page applications really kind of brought about this whole serverless movement. But even single page applications, there's a lot of platforms out there who still insist on the server ser- sending the serverless or the single page application to the client and even, you know, certain widgets to the client. And so that the client itself is not necessarily um, liberated from the server. And what I mean by that is, I'll give you a good example. Um, some platforms like uh, Mean.io. Mean.io is built on the Mean stack, which includes Angular. But the way Mean.io works is it uses Nunjucks on the back end to generate the Angular application. So whenever I am whenever I'm interfacing with the Mean.io application, I am hitting the server, the server generating an Angular app and sending me a single page application. It's remarkable how many platforms still get this wrong. Um, and I, I, that's a harsh, harsh choice of words. I don't want to say get it wrong. It's really an opinionated way of, of building applications. But the whole, the whole opinion of serverless is based on breaking that paradigm so that applications exist on their own. And then they can be deployed on even CDNs. You can host your website on an S3 bucket. And by doing that, you're really breaking the ties to have the server be responsible for sending the application. And a whole world of flexibility opens up when you do that. So the, so at that point, because the data... So, so the server in this paradigm becomes a place to send and receive data, and maybe there's some necessary business logic back there related to managing the data, but, but it's really about data flows and not about application artifacts. Is that I'm, fair? I'm glad you mentioned that because you mentioned back-end data flows. One big gotcha of these server-based platforms is that they do a lot of data flows and state changes on the server. When you operate in a serverless environment, you you really kind of restrict yourself and your, your server to being a stateless REST API. And what I mean by that is the application itself is responsible for state changes in certain things. To give you an example, um, in our forms, whenever you're using a Form.io application, you are very often changing the state of resources. However, the states of resources are never done on the server or the state changes. You're doing those within the application and then using REST, simple REST APIs doing put requests to update the states of certain things. Another thing is, is authentication. With server-side applications, the state of the application itself is determined by who is authenticated into that server. And a lot of a lot of server-based applications, the rendering of the HTML is dependent on who is authenticated. That's never the case for serverless because when that because when you're using serverless, your authentication is quite literally what data can I get to or what APIs can I have access to. But even then, you're accessing these APIs in a stateless manner, so that you're never really modifying state on the server. What you're doing is you're turning the application, the, the single-page application, into a standalone app, which is what I believe it was intended to be. The problem is, is people, are, I think, are, are not utilizing it in, to its fullest potential, let me put it that way. 
I don't think single page apps were the original vision for HTML or even serverless <laughs> apps. But but let's set that as thought aside. I, it's still I, I understand that the servers. The point here is that the server doesn't make application um, decisions. It just but uh, it still seems to me that there's a role to play for logic. And I don't think it has anything to do with state or statefulness at all. Um, that the server is going to make uh, uh, it is responsible for validating um, data and perhaps doing certain kinds of calculations that that should be done server side and all that stuff. That that role still remains, don't you think? It does, but it does so in a microservice type of environment. Mm-hmm. So let me let me kind of explain where microservices come into play with, with what you're talking about. Because um, a lot of our customers need those type of things to happen on the back end. Now, keep in mind, you can do a lot of calculations on the front end. JavaScript's great. Absolutely. Anything you can do on the front end, <laughs> you should do on the front end. Yeah. If you're, if you, once you have uh, bought into either the single page uh, paradigm or what you're calling the serverless uh, uh, paradigm. The idea is to push as much computing out to the client as is as you can do and as is allowed to happen given the, the necessary business rules and stuff you've got. Yeah. But there's certain kinds of things that you're just, you can't trust the client or the client doesn't have access to the data and shouldn't, and you shouldn't flow all the data necessary to make the decision down to the client. And that's the kind of stuff that's reserved for services on the server, yes. perhaps microservices. And I'll give you an, a good example to kind of put ourselves in the context of an example in which you are absolutely right. One is elevated permissions through a purchase being made. So if you're doing a subscription website or a subscription app, where if they pay for something, they then get elevated roles and permissions. Yep. You That is a use case that you absolutely cannot do in the front-end application without exposing the ability for users to upgrade their role without paying. So what you're describing absolutely is true, but you can, you can solve this problem in still a stateless microservices way through the process of, let's say, a form submission being made a form submission is being made to say, I am paying for this service. On the back end, essentially the way FormIO works is we have a bunch of middleware layers that we call actions. And these actions basically um, perform very minimal actions on the submission before it's committed. But one of the things it does is it triggers what's called a webhook. A webhook has the ability to kick itself into a microservice which can also handle that request. Now, we are using Lambda, AWS Lambda, in the case of subscription services to receive the webhook on the back end. It does its authentication through the, um, the payment processor, but then it does a simple put request. Once it has validated, it does a put request on the submission to elevate the permissions based on the acceptance of their payment. So that's an example where you can achieve complex back-end business logic while at the same time remaining stateless from a back-end perspective. And I think and what I'm getting at is there's a lot of back-end server applications that do it right. Hopefully I'm not coming across saying you're doing it wrong if you're, you're entirely you know, a server-based application. All I'm saying is it's very easy 
to go into to fall into what I, what I call anti patterns of application development, where your server is is no longer a stateless REST API. It it, it becomes this monolith, and you then you have these interconnected dependencies within your backend application. By converting your REST API to a very simple, really resource data management system, and then kicking off webhooks to microservices as need be, you really create a scale that you would never, you would not be able to achieve with a single monolith server-based application. All right, let's take a break and earn a little money for the show by talking about Hired.com. Hired is the world's most intelligent talent matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities in engineering, development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. They put you in control, fill out an application, and then top employers apply to hire you. Throughout the process, your dedicated talent advocate will also have your back, providing unbiased career coaching to help you put your best foot forward with potential employers. And Hired offers access to more than 4,000 innovative employers, including big brand names like Facebook and smaller emerging startups. The size and type of company you want to connect with is totally up to you. And they help people find new opportunities in 17 major cities in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. So if you're open to relocation, you can let them know, and they'll work that in too. Finally, if you use our link, you can earn double the normal hiring bonus. The normal hiring bonus is a thousand bucks and they give you two thousand instead. So go check them out at hire.com slash adventures in Angular. So Travis, just to make sure I understand, are all PWAs serverless applications or no? Can you say what a PWA is, Alyssa? Progressive web app. So we could get into defining that, but there's also a, a long list of like what qualifies as a PWA and what doesn't. But I what, what's in your mind, Alyssa, as you describe it, that? Just just it is a responsive web app that works uh, for any shape and size, and it is also works offline. So maybe I, I don't know. That may, is what made me think. Is that why it's? Does that count as serverless, or is that a totally different concept? So um, I'm glad you actually mentioned the you know progressive web apps and also like mobile first. Um, you know, where you have essentially a responsive website that responds to um, the device. I also believe that progressive web apps are API-driven web apps. I believe in order to be classified as a progressive web app, it should be API-driven, although I'm, I might be wrong about that. Okay. But what I would like to mention, and so, so to answer your question immediately, I'll say a progressive web app, as I know it is defined, is a serverless web app. It's just another label for it. Okay, that um, makes that makes more sense whenever we put it in those terms because I, I get the concepts, but I was getting a little fuzzy there. So well, it's it's interesting that you mentioned mobile and in, in responsiveness because uh, if you guys remember, like four years ago, the big coin phrase that everyone said is you need to develop mobile first, and if you're going to build an app, you're going to you need to do it mobile first. One very interesting thing to note about that is whenever people solved that, they did not solve it serverless way. They, the server was still sending a web app that just so happened to resize on the person's device. Right, it had media CSS tags. Yeah, and so it was, yeah, so it was using, and so that was a mobile first. It's interesting because I actually think we need a new term. In fact, this term is actually starting to be thrown around first, where instead of thinking mobile first, start thinking API first when you're building an app. Build, build the API, mm. the, the stateless REST API and the data management capabilities, and then the application quite literally just becomes a an app 
that can sit on top of the APIs. Can you give like an example from back with like, you know, the form that Ward was describing? Like if we were not going to start by building this out, thinking mobile first, but thinking API first, what would be one of the very first things we do? So the very first things is, is think about your data structure and your data. And so whenever any web application developer was, you know, back in the day was going to build a web app, they would start thinking about their database. How do I want to structure the data? And they would come up with these database tables. It's remarkable that those database tables that they used to structure and they would create like, you know, linking dependencies. And this one is dependent on that data structure. That's that exercise is still very relevant in terms of structuring your APIs. Um, as it turns out, whenever you're building your data structure, you can actually build um, in Form.io, you can actually build resources, but you're using forms to do it. You're using drag and drop form builders, but you're really actually building a data structure. Um, so these data structures really serve as the data interface and the database interface. So now at that point, you focus on your API, build your API. In fact, I always tell um, application developers that your first app for your API should not be an app. Your first app should be a test an API test, you know, build like using Mocha, write some API tests around your API, and that becomes your first application. And then once you have your API fully tested, fully automated, and it's solid, at that point, you shift your focus over to an Angular application, but you build it locally on your machine. You don't have the server send, you know, in no way should your API engine send the application. A lot of people on a lot of platforms actually start you off um, constructing the app. And like CMSs, and I think it's been ingrained in developers because CMSs work this way. When you start a WordPress website, you start by installing WordPress and then you're, you're in content land at that point. And you don't really think about data structures. And, but what happens with that is you, now you're essentially handcuffed to the server. And now instead of, if you need to integrate with anything, you have to install a module. I come from Drupal and Drupal, if you want to integrate and pull in a Twitter feed into your application, you have to install the Twitter module, a backend module to enable that feature. And the reason why that is, is because you're kind of locked into this server side paradigm where you're used to building your app on the server. By building the API first, you have no other choice but to start your application using tools like um, Yeoman generators and using Webpack to compile and create these, these standalone distributions, which are nothing but HTML and CSS and JavaScript, but they're standalone. And by doing API first, you put yourself in the right mindset to not fall into the trap of having the server take care of everything for you. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to push back and, and unpack that a little bit, all right? Because I've been sure. around this block a few times. Um, <laughs> uh, there's a, um, as a matter of fact, there's, there's a part of me that's really sympathetic because way back in the day, I won't say when that was, I, uh, we used to say that if you show me your data, I'll show you, I'll tell you what your application does. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's almost kind of what you're saying here. Show me your API and I know what your app does. Is uh, and that was not a bad heuristic, um, but uh, then there was a movement afoot that said, "Well, maybe the user experience is first. 
right? Uh, and I don't even really know what my API should be until I've worked out how the user is going to interact with it, what the workflow is going to be. And so that does lead you to start thinking, not in, in terms of APIs first necessarily, but in terms of the, us the user experience, the front end. Yep. Uh, more recently, I've come to think that it, it requires a balance of both of those perspectives and you kind of meet in the middle. But So, so, so uh, when I hear you say, just get your API right, I, w I wonder how you even know what your API is and if you don't want the user experiences. I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because, Ward, if you were not correct in what you just said, then there would be no need for a tool like Form.io. Um, because what with the API-first approach, you still run into the problem that you just described. Whereas you almost have to put yourself into an application context to even know where your data is going to, what your data is going to be structured. And so with that said, what Form.io actually accomplishes is but allows you to put yourself into a data workflow type of exercise in how do I want to collect my data. And through the process of building the interface, which is the form, you are essentially automatically building the API to support it. And you're doing so without violating the API first mentality. The API first, whenever you're building your form, you're actually generating the API. So actually, I think... API first is really kind of the starting point is what I want to say. You know, I don't I don't want every front end developer to have to be you have to be a, an API builder to become a front a front end developer. Um, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is the starting point should be APIs and you can you can reflect certain API constructs in the UI in a very elegant way. And it just so happens form building is one way to do that. Um, so whenever you're building your data workflows and you're, you're envisioning your application, of course, the apps that we deal with are really form-based apps, which those are almost in the classification to themselves. You know, if you're building, like, let's say, the next WhatsApp, you know, do you really need to construct all the database, the APIs? I mean, you probably do, but it really, the, in, that, in those type of applications, the app itself could possibly define what your data structures are. It still needs to be API-driven, though. Um, going back to our inspection example, uh, so I have, you know, I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, all right, well, we're building a form for the hotel, we're building for the gas station, we're building one for the restaurant. Um, are you, you were saying that they were generating an API, which implies that it knows that like that API is going to go create something on the server and figure out what this, how it's going to be, the data are going to be stored. I, I miss that connection. Yeah. And it's, it's really hard to achieve um, what we did with Formio without a NoSQL backend. So that's first, first and foremost, that's one of the most important. That's what I figured you were going. You're going to go NoSQL. Yeah. That's one of the most important starting points as from a database management perspective. Now it doesn't mean that I'm, I'm, totally against SQL-based databases. Um, however, I do believe that if you need the flexibility that we offer, you need a NoSQL as your starting database. Now, we have a number of connectors that allows you to map um, schema-less definitions into very structured table-based definitions. But that's a secondary request at that point. 
inspections. So each of those uh, different inspection forms would result in a sort of a different re different representation in an OSQL database. In your, in the metadata that described them with that you're creating for Forma would help you also understand what it was that you had stuffed into your MongoDB or that's whatever, right? That's exactly right. In order to really make sense of the data, you need two things. One is obviously the data um, submission itself, which is just a packet of JSON. But you also need the form definition, which defines what it is that's stuffed in that submission. So whenever you're loading a submission, you have some context on how is that data stored. And the context is provided by a form definition, which is a separate definition entirely from the submission definition. And as my form evolves, but my data stays behind in like form version one, and now it's form version two, you're, you're, you're pinning the data representation in your data store to the version of the form definition that, from which that data were created? It, it can be, yes, it, yes. Um, and what's great about it is when you're loading a submission, you're loading the form definition to go along with it. So now your front-end application, let's say it loads a submission that's three versions behind. You cannot load a submission without loading the version of form to go along with it. So even then, you're going to render the form dynamically in the version in which the, the submission was submitted. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to see how this goes together. Um, <laughs> um, it means that as I, so, so imagine I, I have that whole thing. Now I need to, you know, from a server side perspective, I need to reason across all of these inspections that we've accumulated. Some of them taken by forms of different vintage, right? Mm -hmm. But I need, uh, uh, you know, I'm probably gathering inspections from all my inspectors out in the field in order to do some kind of analysis and data retrieval and searches for violations and all that other stuff. That's something that I would do server-side uh, with uh, server-side code ripping over the MongoDB, right? And actually what we've done is we've, yes, you would do that on the server-side, but we've actually exposed um, some MongoDB facilities um, via REST API, such as the aggregation framework. So now you need to get to your data, and you need to be able to aggregate it and funnel it and put it through pipes of manipulation. Um, one great thing about our APIs is our API is really almost a window into Mongo. Um, and so you actually have the ability to construct using aggregation framework, um, aggregation API requests to structure your data in the, in the structure you need it. Sure, and and I could imagine, you know, again in the boy the alphabet soup, the CQRS world, uh, <laughs> you where some you know where you have some process then sweeps that sweeps through your Mongo, produces SQL tables or whatever it is that somebody wants to have for analytics to do queries against. So I I kind of get that. So let's get back. Let's get closer to the front end. Uh -huh. uh, and um, talk about how you with this metadata that describes the form how you render widgets on the screen using Angular. So it's it's actually much more, especially in Angular 2, Angular 2 made this way more difficult than it was in Angular 1, um, where we, you know, it, what we're doing is a little bit different than, than a normal Angular app. A normal Angular app, you start off with a static HTML structure, your template of your directive, or your component in Angular 2, and then you feed data into that, that structure. 
Um, what we've had to do to really kind of make dynamic HTML from a schema work is we, A, leveraged object-oriented you know, very heavily. So every single component is essentially its own class and defines how that component looks. Mm-hmm. And then the from a from a rendering perspective, you now have this form, which the form is the form schema is hierarchical as well. So you really kind of have this this recursive iteration into the form components, essentially instantiating the component class that is associated with that JSON component object, and yep. then it lets it render itself. And then in order to make all of that work, you basically have to essentially have dynamic view refs where they are dynamically pulling those rendered components into a, an, a list structure. And so that forms, essentially it, it builds HTML right in front of you is what it ends up doing. So the, for the folks at home uh, who are learning Angular, this is something that they're they're not used to. This is sort of dynamic um, view construction. And so let me see if I've got this right. First, your first step was to say, all right, we have a catalog of widgets that we can put on a screen, and each of those widgets is going to be an Angular component representing some kind of representation of the data that's in your JSON, right? That's correct. Yeah. Described by Jason. So, you know, here's one for the drop down, the multi choice thing. Here's one for a free text entry. Here's one for checkbox, that kind of thing. That's correct. So, you have a class that is associated uh, with, each, with e- each element type. Yes. And then you have some way of saying, well, I've got component, you know, master container components into which I can dynamically plunk down. Oh, I guess I need a selector here. Now I need a checkbox component there. Now I need a free text entry there. Uh, all guided by the JSON, but you're, you're, you're dropping these things in, these components in dynamically into some kinds of container structures. Is that approximately right? That's that's right, and actually, all of this source code is available. So, if anybody wants to see how we did it, it's all open source on GitHub.com forward slash Formio, one word, forward slash ng2 dash Formio, and in there you'll see that we actually heavily leverage the view child view container references mm-hmm. um, to essentially create a a standard form element um, component. And the form element component will take a JSON structure that tells that form element component, here's how I, here's the type of component you should become. And that form element type then loads up that component class and then replaces its guts with the contents of the, whatever the form component class says it should be. So if... If you're playing at home um, and you've been following the general guidance, most people are used to sort of writing fixed template, you know, fixed templates, and there's a bound to the component, and that's as far as, you know, that's what they know. And so, because uh, we get this question a lot, like, uh, why can't I change the HTML template on a component after I've already defined it once? Why can't I do it freeform? Yeah. And that's kind of the way we used to do it in Angular 1, right? Yeah, yeah. Angular 1 was much easier than Angular 2. 
Um, but well, we, it, changes, we, it requires a different perspective. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> how I like to think of it. But uh, the fact is we haven't really taught this yet. We haven't taught people how, and it sounds like this is what you're doing. It's Yeah, it's exactly um, – yeah, it's exactly. And all of the source code is available um, for if anybody is needs to do it and you need a pattern to to establish. Um, again, you can go to the our GitHub ng2 Formio library, and there's this very special component called Formio element component.ts, and in, in the source folder, and that's really the component where all the magic happens. Um. Well, so boiling it down, <laughs> aside from the wonders that are Formio I.O., I want to su- suggest that once you actually learn how to do this, the idea of putting – because I, I did this recently for a separate project – of just creating a container and dropping uh, com- uh, components into it completely driven by – you know, day-driven way. Yeah. But from a collection of component definitions that cover the kinds of things you want to do, but dynamically constructing them based on other metadata, That's it correct. actually isn't that hard to do. You just, but you do have to know how, um, and that's yeah. uh, that's what we got to teach people. Okay. Yeah, and you're right. It isn't hard once you learn, but getting to the solution is what was difficult. Um, exactly, particularly when you're thinking as you were, you're coming from Angular One space or many others, almost any other space really, that you're supposed to be constructing HTML on the yeah. fly, and that's what you don't do in Angular, uh, the new Angular. You don't construct HTML on the fly. You construct component trees on the fly. Yeah, that's correct. Yep. So with the the pattern has been established. It works really well in Angular Two, and um, I will send a, a, a link to the actual component that does it if anybody needs a reference. Well, I th- I think that would certainly help people learn how this goes. <laughs> uh, Lucas, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure, I have two picks this week. Uh, my first one is a new Flexbox series that our friend David Geddes uh, just started about Flexbox and Zombies, and uh, he's been releasing, I believe, a lesson a day. I've gotten two of them. They're very, very good. Uh, Classic David. He's probably one of the funniest people I know. And also, I've been reading Tools of Titans by Tim Ferriss, and it is probably one of my favorite books ever. I actually went out and bought 10 more copies to give out to my friends. Oh, I haven't received mine yet, Lucas. Well, you're going to get it. (laughs) I'm coming out, and I'm bringing you a copy, buddy. It's uh, but phenomenal. It's all of you know, basically a um, a composition of all of his interviews and his you know his best tips and tricks and strategies that he's learned from his podcast. And um, I'm waiting for Chuck to actually do uh, a version of that text style. Um, but uh, nonetheless, great book. Highly recommend it. Also, check out uh, David's a uh, Flexbox Zombie Saga that he is producing. It's pretty cool. All right, Alyssa, what are your picks? I have a friend, Shai Resnick. Some people in the Angular community probably have heard of him. And he uh, invited me to help out with his highres.io website where he does funny educational content. So I'll be coming out with some stuff with him soon. But um, upcoming even sooner than that is a TDD course for Angular. So have your eyes out for that and check out highres.io. Very cool. We've had Shai on the show before, so we'll, uh, we'll link to some of those episodes too. Um, cool, cool. Ward, what are your picks? Well, I have a pick. It's a it's an 
it's an oldie but a goodie book that I, I have called Objects of Desire, Design and Society uh, since 1750. And um, it's really it's a look at consumer goods and what the relationship is between utility and appearance. Uh, and how that influences the design of objects. And I just kind of feel like uh, something like that refreshes my thinking about the design of uh, computer software. All righty, I'll jump in here with a couple of picks. Um, the first one is, I, I just, it's funny, I didn't even know that I had it. It's actually still in shrink wrap, but I love these uh, Moleskine uh, notebooks. Uh, they're just nice. They feel great. <laughs> and I, I, I take did you say moleskine? I yeah. thought it was just moleskin. It has an e on the end, so it's moleskine. I, I, I called it moleskin too. Uh. <laughs> I've got to Google this, man. I'm telling you, it's moleskin. But we can be fancy. Oh <laughs> uh, no, moleskine. You know that's it. Hey, or, I, that's that's how I, because when I first saw him, that's what I called him, and I, I got corrected. So. You can correct oh, me. Oh wow! Back. Okay, anyway. I'm sure you're right, but it just sounds uh, so funny. Yeah, I love it. All right, so Moleskine, got it. <laughs> anyway, um, so Moleskine, I, I really like them. Um, they're just nice, um, well-made notebooks. Um, I've taken to journaling in the morning again, and so and I do it by hand. I, I don't type it into the computer, so um, it's just kind of a nice thing to have, and then. If I need to jot something down or, you know, things like that, then anyway, it's, it's a nice way to go. So um, I'm really enjoying that. And then I've also uh, started using a system called Asana. I'm sure people have heard of it. It's a to-do app. It's something that I've been using to just keep track of all the stuff I have going on since I now have uh, a few people working with me to get the, app, uh, the conferences and the podcasts and everything else together. So um, anyway great tool uh travis do you have some picks for us oh you put me on the spot i don't what tv have you been or what tv show have you been wasting your time on lately <laughs> oh I've, I've been really into westworld if any of you guys are getting into westworld they just had their season finality so if anybody has not seen that i re recommend it it's uh, it's about ai taking over the world which i really thoroughly enjoy yeah i i watched every one of those darn things and burned a lot on <laughs> nights with them i i can say it's a guilty pleasure it is a guilty pleasure for sure i just I recommend can't it. they blew the place up at the end like hey 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 nobody blew anything really up don't listen to <laughs> oh don't be mad i'm kidding <laughs> my my lines always yeah and they all died um <laughs> yeah the the other one there was that I, fire I, from the sky and there were floods and there were locusts and it all and it all went to yeah. to custard that's how it is yeah the <laughs> other one that i ask if people don't have picks is books are, are there any books that you just think everybody should read um you know i i most of mine are just um i don't have i don't have any books that i can think of at the moment I have, have no life. I have, I have no life, Travis. Well, I have I have three kids, so unless it's going to be like Curious George or the only books, know, right? Like, what's the their ones, favorite book? The ones that I read are the, are the ones I read to my books, and at that point, I'm burned off of books. So, I, <laughs> you know, yeah, my. 
I see. I have. The, I've got the whole Pinkalicious line down because I read those to my kids. <laughs> yeah. There you go. All right. Well, um, if people want to check out uh, forum.io or read your blog or uh, follow you on Twitter, I mean, where where are you these days online? Where am I? Am I? You can find me on Twitter. I'm Software Gnome on Twitter. Um, that has its own back end meeting behind it. Um, Software Gnome. And then, of course, you can find me on GitHub. I'm uh, Travis T on GitHub, so github.com forward slash Travis T. I have a lot of open source JavaScript libraries. So feel free to download and use. Wait, are you playing on words there? Like, I just realized, like, Travis T. Travis T, yeah. It could be called a play on words there, yeah. <laughs> Clever. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we will go ahead and wrap this up, and we will catch everyone next week. 